Hey guys, how's it going? Back finally from my week's vacation uh, at Disneyland. Had a blast. And uh, for those of you that checked it out, I did go live on YouTube um, for the rides and stuff. So that's over on YouTube. But I'm going to be cleaning those up because, you know, there are the things that get on the rides. You know, you got all that. I just want to get right in there and show you. That way you guys can have an instant show to what we did and uh, get a look at it. There's about seven, five or six or seven videos over at YouTube. A uh, quick thing about the shows, too, is that this week it's going to be hit and miss where I'll have, so far I have two live guests booked this week, and then probably the other two days maybe best ofs. I don't know yet, so we'll have to see how that goes because I'm behind. Because, I, you know, I was working so hard to advance, get everything advanced for last week so that you guys would have something to watch, that there was really no time to try and book this week. I was too busy trying to book last week. So what you'll end up doing, getting is either I'm going to re, I'm going to re live or you'll get uh, some best ofs, or you know to 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 watch. So um, yeah. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm actually live tonight. See that? You can see me moving around. I uh, just got back from Disneyland Friday and uh, had a full rest day yesterday and a full rest day today. Heck of a trip. Great trip. I, I got to thank Carrie Peoples and Monica Funk for all this, but mostly Carrie Carrie People. Um, stayed at the Grand Californian, and it was great. Just great. Had a great time. So, welcome, welcome. Tonight is Sunday reading night, and I'm going to be reading from the Salem Witch Trial book by Rebecca F. Pittman. And uh, it's an interesting read. Um, it's, it's hard sometimes because it is written in old-timey English, so <laughs> the words aren't even, like, like do is D-O-E, like do, you know, and there's different things that they that they have there in there that um, that throw me off when I'm reading it. Plus, I've got contacts, obviously, not my glasses, but these contacts are temporary contacts, so they're not quite my prescription. So I may have to make adjustments on what I'm reading tonight. But this is my first live show in two weeks. It's good to be here. You know, I, I, you know, it rained um, last week. I know it rained here in Sacramento last week. Where, you know, been, then when I was down in Disneyland, it rained last Monday, too. And, and then we ended up going back to the hotel because our feet got soaked. We weren't, you know, prepared for that. But I am going to, the videos that I do have up on YouTube, um, of the, of the trip and the rides, I'm going to clean them up so that it's a lot more better flowing thing. So I'm going to clean those up for you guys. But anyway, like I said, just bear with me this week because, you know, I was in Los Angeles the last week and I didn't have time to send out letters to try and get bookings for the show or anything like that. So I'm behind. So I've got uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Ruth Roper Wild is going to be with us talking about British ghosts. And she's had done books on maps to British ghosts to show you where they are and stuff. So she's going to be on with us at 11. Uh, she was supposed to be on um, a couple weeks ago, and then she got sick. And then I had to read that day. But she's going to be with us tomorrow at 11. And I also have a, a guest schedule for Wednesday. And I may have a guest schedule for Thursday. If not, I'll probably either read or do a best of show because I'm behind. Like tonight, I'm going to stay up and I'm going to work and get letters out to get guests going again. So we can get the flow going again with the show and guests. Hello, Pamela. I see you in the chat room. Anyway, I'm live for the first time in a long time. Like I said, I'm real excited to be back. Kind of wish I was still at Disneyland. You know, it's kind of addictive to be there, but uh, maybe things go start start rolling for me and I can get back, or Disney World or, or whatever. So, again, tonight is Sunday reading night, so you don't have to sit there and watch me lean over the book reading it. You can always go have your dinner with your family and just listen, or you can do laundry or do your dishes or, you know, do whatever it is you're doing in your house and just sit back and relax, you know. Sit by the fireside, put your fuzzies on, and listen as I read the book, Okay. I believe where we left off, and I'm trying to remember because it's been over a week, that um, they they had arrested several more people on suspicion of being witches. And they were starting to bring them in for the, the, the questioning. So that's, I think, is where we're at right now. So bear with me. Let me get my tablet open, and away we go. And, uh, yeah, let's get the show on the road. Back home and doing it. But like I said, there's uh, several videos on YouTube. I did go live at Disneyland on the rides, also California Adventure. And so there's several videos sitting on YouTube, but there's stuff I want to clean up. You know, make it nice, nice and smooth for you guys to see. That's my first time ever shooting live on rides like that. So just that gives you, you know, a handle on it. But I had some great tools. I had a chest, a chest harness for my cell phone. The head harness didn't come. It's too bad. I probably could have used that. I had a chest harness for my cell phone. Which worked out really well, so it was kind of fun. It was fun. So my 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 old antiquated tablet is warming up right now. Now I'm going to read for about an hour in this book. 
Um, I, I tend to struggle, like I said, because it's written in old-timey English. So um, stuff does throw me. So I might reread a page or something weird like that and make mistakes. There's a lot of mistakes I do with this book. But it's a great book. I mean, she really, um, Rebecca F. Pittman is de really detail-oriented, and she goes into a lot of detail about the trials. You know, she, she's done her research, and a lot of the stuff that I'm reading off of is her research, you know, in, in the archives. And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes there's pages missing in the stuff that she's got. And she's just trying to formulate it into a book format. So, okay. Here we go. I'm going to start a wish list too, you guys, you know, because I could really use a an iPad or a new tablet, like an 8-inch. That would be really great. Let me see what I can do here. Okay. We kind of left off in the middle of a chapter, if I remember right. Because I remember the last time I read this was like 2 a.m. on the Saturday before I left to go to Disneyland. So... I'm just trying to remember where I was. And FYI, I did have a couple of chocolates. The hotel would bring us chocolates every night when, 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 you know, when they turned over the sheets. So that was nice. So um, I had some chocolates, and I have to get me going here. Okay, so here we go. Um, okay, so we are in chat. Okay, this is the history and haunting of Salem, the witch trials, and beyond. And we're about forty-seven percent through the book. So tonight we just might hit. Halfway through the book. Okay. So here we go. The men who sat at the bar were flying by the seat of their pants, relying on previous manuscripts from England and elsewhere that outlined the criteria for finding a witch guilty, which was whittled down to the touch test, reciting the Lord's Prayer verbatim, the finding of witch marks upon their bodies, and that more than one witness to the act. Increased Mather had done away with the swimming, the witch test, as he found it inconclusive and barbaric. Above all, a confession was the most desired evidence, especially as spectral evidence was becoming increasingly problematic. Thomas Farrar Sr. was another was another Lynn resident with a history of drunkenness. At 75 years of age, he numbered among the old, older accused witches. Interestingly, Farrar's, Farrar's, I think it's Farrar's, F-A-R-R-E-R-S, Farrar's indictment was based largely on only Ann Putnam Jr.'s testimony against him, although it had been rumored he had once struck a pregnant woman while she was riding, throwing her from her horse. Nice guy. Deposition of Ann Putnam Jr., Thomas Putnam and Robert Morrell versus Thomas Farrer. Farrer. I'll say Farrer. I'll say Farrer. May 16, 1692. The deposition of Ann Putnam, who testifieth and saith that on the 8th of May, 1692, there appeared to me the apparition... This is the, I'm going to let you guys know what I'm facing. A P P E R I S H T I O N. Okay. Of an old gray head, of an old gray head man with a great nose, which, which, tortured. T O R T O R E D. So that tells you how I'm struggling here. Which tortured me and almost choked me, and urged me to write to, to writ in this book, and I asked him what was his name and from whence. He came, for I would complain of him. And he told me he came from, from Lynn, and people used to call him Old Father Pharaoh. And he said he was my grandfather, for my father used to call him father. But I told, hang on a second, see what I mean? But I told I would not call him grandfather. Hang on one second, okay. I would not call him grandfather, for he was a wizard, and I would complain of him. And ever since, he hath affected me by times beating me and pinching me and almost choking me and urging me continually to write in his book, we whose names are underwritten, having been conversed, conversant with Ann Putnam, have hard, have, have heard, I'm going to say heard, have heard her declare what is above written, what she said and saw and heard from the apparition of old Pharaoh, and also have seen her, her tortures. Or tortures, I'm just gonna say it, and perceived her hellish temptations <laughs> by her loud outcries. I will not write, old Pharaoh. I will not write in your book, Thomas and asterisk with Thomas Putman, Robert Morrell. Mary Witheridge had the misfortune of being the daughter of Sarah and William Buckley. When her husband Sylvester Witheridge died, she moved in with the Buckleys along with her two small children, Elizabeth Hubbard. Okay, children. Elizabeth Hubbard was the most vocal at Mary's short inquisition, stating, 
I have a considerable time been afflicted by Mary Witheridge, but on the 18th May of 1692, being the day of her examination, Mary Witheridge did most grievously torment me during the time of her examination, or if she did but look upon me, she would strike me down and almost choke also on the day of her examination. I saw Mary Witheridge or her, or her appearance most grievously afflict and torment Mary Walcott, Sarah Bibber, and Ann Putnam. And I believe in my heart that Mary Witheridge is a witch and that she has often afflicted and tormented me and the aforesaid persons by acts of witchcraft. Rebecca Jacobs. Rebecca was the wife of George Jacobs, Jr., another of the Jacobs family to be summoned before the magistrates excuse me, oops, in Salem Village on May 18, 1692. Rebecca had been charged along with her husband, George Jacobs, Jr., her brother, Daniel Andrews, also of Salem Town, along with her husband, George, had fled out of the country and gone into hiding. When Constable Jonathan Putnam knocked on the Jacobs' door, it was Rebecca who answered it. Standing there in a confused state, along with her four children, ages two and a half years to 15 years old. Rebecca had been unbalanced for some time. Her mother stated that Rebecca was a woman crazed, distracted, and broken in her mind, probably based on her apparent distractedness, along with the fact that George Sr. and Margaret Jacobs, who had confessed to witchcraft, were imprisoned, and that they had, that they had a warrant for George Jr. The men took Rebecca with them. Her children ran down the road after them, crying. Daniel Andrews was their uncle on their mother's side. But as he too had fled along with their father, they were taken in by neighbors. Elizabeth Hubbard was Rebecca Jacobs' chief accuser, claiming Jacobs had pinched her and choked her on many occasions, including today during the Inquisition. The other afflicted girls seemed not to recognize Rebecca as she stood before the bar until Hubbard cried, Don't you know Jacobs, the old witch? Hubbard hit the floor in a convulsion. Frightened by the outburst, Rebecca took the road others had before her, and confessed to hurting the girls and, and covenanting with the devil. Oddly, she also confessed to accidentally drowning her two-year-old her two-year-old Mary in a well system years earlier. She was committed to jail to await trial. Hi, Marisa. How's it going? Roger Toothacre. Roger Toothacre was a farmer from Belurica with an interesting reputation of detecting malfasium and punishing the wicked with counter magic. It was rumored his daughter had killed a suspected witch once with, a, with use of his white magic. Toothaker had been living inside the Salem town boundaries for about eight years, leaving his wife and children in Belurka to the mercy and charity of strangers. This was against Puritan law, where charity was thought to be akin to slothfulness. Hawthorne issued a warrant for Toothaker to be brought from Salem town to the village meeting house, which was carried out that very day. A deposition presented to Hawthorne and Corwin a few days later testified to the white magic carried out by Toothaker's daughter. Deposition of Thomas, Thomas Gage and Elias Pickworth versus Robert Roger Toothaker. May 23, 1692. The deposition of Thomas Gage, aged about six and 36 years of age, this deposition, Saith and Doth, testify that sometime this last spring of the year that Dr. Toothaker was in his home in Beverly upon some occasion, and we discoursed about John Maston's child of Salem that was then sick and having unwanted fits, and likewise another child of Philip White's of Beverly, who was then strangely sick. I persuaded said Toothmaker to go and see said children, SDM thing was said, and said Toothaker answered he had seen them both already, and that his opinion was that they were under an evil hand, and father, and, and father said, Toothaker, said that his daughter had killed a witch, and I asked him how she did it, and said Toothaker answered readily that his daughter had learned something from him. I asked by what means she did it, and he said that there was a certain person bewitched, and said person complained of being afflicted by another person that was that was suspected by the afflicted person. And farther, said Toothaker, said that his said daughter got some of the afflicted person's urine and put it into an earthen pot and stopped said pot very close and put said pot to a hot oven and stopped up said oven 
and the next morning said, with parentheses, a witch, was dead. Was dead. Other things I have forgotten. And Father saith not, yes, Pickworth. I'm just reading what I'm reading. Aged about 34 years, testifieth to all that is written above. Reverse. Sworn by Thomas Gage. Salem Village. May 23rd. Before us, um, asterisk John Hawthorne. Assists Jonathan Corwin and assists. The nun such arrives. On May 14, 1692, the fleet from England headed by the frigate Nunsuch sailed into Boston Harbor. Governor Sir William Phipps and increased mayor were triumphantly escorted to the townhouse on High Street where a candlelit ceremony was to take place, instating Phipps as the governor of Massachusetts. As it was a Saturday, the festivities were cut short as the sun began to set, heralding the Sabbath. The formalities would have to wait. The two men were ceremoniously led to their wedding families in Boston's North End without the usual fanfare of volley, of volley rounds and bugle blasts, again, due to the ensuing Sabbath. The charter was finally home in Boston. The legal means to condemn a witch to death now loomed above the heads of those waiting in prison, some of them for months. Before the first trial could take place, however, more witches were arrested and brought to Salem Village. Okay, we run along. Chapter 25, Homecomings and Heartbreaks. Sometime in mid-May, during all the arrests and hearings, the specter of Abigail Soames began torturing Mary Warden as the girl sat in prison. Abigail was a Salem Town resident who had once lived in, Gloc in Gloucester. The 37-year-old woman's shape was so unrelenting in its attack on Mary Warren that Hawthorne and Corwin issued a warrant for her arrest immediately. Constable Peter Osgood hastened to the home of Samuel and Elizabeth Gaskell in Salem, where Abigail was living and working at the time. Wasting no time, Hawthorne and Corwin ordered Mary Warren, brought from Salem jail, to Thomas Beadle's tavern. She cried that the specter of Abigail Soames was following her and biting her as she entered the Beadle's gate. Abigail Soames was brought into the room, and Mary dropped to the floor, screaming that the woman's spirit was biting her and jabbing her. Based on Mary's attack, the court ordered that the clothing of Soames be searched for any source of image magic. Parentheses poppets. They found a great crotching, crocheting needle. It's felt crotching. A crocheting needle in her apron. Examination of Abigail Soames, May 13th, 1692. Abigail Soames again. Okay, yeah, it says Salem. Upon the glance of her eye, she struck Mary Warren into a dreadful fit at her first appearance, and said what, and said Warren continually crying out that it was this very woman who she knew her not before, only affirmed that she herself, an apparition, was told her that her name was Soames, and also did affirm that this was the very woman that had afflicted her all this day and that. She met her as she was coming in at the gate, and bit her exceedingly. At her first examination there, okay. At her first examining there was found in her apron a great botching needle about the middle of it near her belly, which was plucked out by one of the standers by. By order of the magistrates, which the said Soames affirmed, she knew not how it came there. Mary Warren affirmed that she had never saw the said woman before only in an apparition, and then she told her that her name was Abigail Soames and that she was sister to John Soames of Preston Cooper and that she lived at Gaskins, and that she had lain bedrid for a year. Being asked whether she was sister to John Soames, she answered pre preemptorily that she would not tell, for all was false that Warren said. Further, okay, furthermore, Warren affirmed that she told her that she visited the said Soames, okay, that she visioned the said Soames was the instrumental means of the death of Southwick. Upton, where Seb Soames casting her eye on Warren struck her into a dreadful fit and bit her so dreadfully that the like was never seen on any of the afflicted, which the said Warren charged Soames with doing off, saying that said Soames told her this day she would be the death of she would be the death of her. Further, Warren affirms that she that she, the said Soames, ran two pins into her side this day, which being plucked out, the blood ran out after them. Goody Gaskin, being present at this examination, affirmed she had kept her bed for most of the parts for at least 13 months. 
Warren further affirmed she told her that when she did go abroad at any time, it was in the night, which Goody Gaskin, being present, confirmed the same, that that was the usual time of her going abroad. Furthermore, Warren affirmed that this Abigail Soames would have had her to have made a bargain with her, telling her if she would not tell of her being a sickly woman, she would not afflict her any more. And that then she should go along with her, along with her, for the said Soames told her she was her God. Upon which Warren answered she would she would not keep the devil's counsel. Soames told her she was not a devil, but she was her God. After this appearing after this appearing three times more to her, she said at one of those times she was as good as good as God. Question Mary. Warren, is this true? Answer, it is nothing but the truth. Soames being asked who hurt Warren in the time of her fits, she answered, it was the enemy hurt her. I have been said, she myself distracted many a time, and my senses have gone from me, and I thought I have seen many a body hurt me, and might have accused many as well, as she doth. I really thought I had seen many persons at my mother's house at Gloucester, and they greatly afflicted me, as I thought. Soames being commanded while well, Warren was in a dreadful fit to take Warren by the hand, the said Warren immediately recovered. This experiment was tried three times over, was tried three times over, and they issued the same. Warren, after recovering, being commanded to touch the said Soames's, although she, <laughs> although she has said several times to do it with great earnestness, she was not able, but fell down into a dreadful fit. Upon which the said the said Soames, being commanded to take Warren by the hand, she immediately recovered. For again, Warren affirming she had felt something soft in her hand. Parentheses her eyes then began then being at first shut, which revived her very heart. Warren began Warren being asked what the reason was she could not come to touch Soames affirmed she saw the apparition of Soames come to her come from her body and would meet her and thrust her with violence back again, not suffering her come near her. Sometimes Soames would say it was distraction in, ta in talking. She would often laugh, upon which laughing, the afflicted person would presently fall into a fit. Soames being asked whether she thought this was witchcraft, or whether there were any witches in the world, answered she did not know anything, but said it was the enemy or some other wicked person or the enemy himself that forces persons to afflict her at this time. Presently, this Warren fell into a trance, coming out of which she affirmed that Soames told her in the time of her trance that she wouldn't that she would thrust an owl, an owl, owl, it's A W L, into her very heart and would kill her. This night, Soames could never cast her eye upon Warren, but immediately she struck her down. And one time, she affirmed said Soames struck her such a blow and almost killed. Scratch here. Sorry, guys. And almost killed. <laughs> okay. As almost killed, which made the said Warren break out into abundance of tears. Soames being charged with it, instead of bewailing it, broke forth into laughter. Warren also afflicted Warren also afflicted by the by, by the by the ringing in her mouth after a strange and and excuse me. After a strange after a strange matter. We're gonna leave it with that. Soames being commanded to look upon her in that fit. Pretemptorily answered she would not. Same being, same being by being ordered to turn her face about to look on the afflicted, which being accordingly done, she shut her eyes closed and did not look on her being, then ordered to touch her. She did, and immediately Warren recovered, which no sooner done, but Soames opened her eyes and looked on the afflicted and struck her into another most dreadful and terrible fit. And in this matter, she practiced her witchcraft several times before the court. Mary Warren, looking on her on her, affirmed this to be the very woman that had so often afflicted her during the examination and charged her with it to her face. Sometimes during the examination, Soames would, would put her own foot behind the other leg and immediately Warren's legs would be twisted. Parentheses reverse, that it was impossible for the strongest man there to untwist them without breaking her legs, as was seen by many present. After this examination, Warren says the apparition of Proctor, Nurse, and Burroughs 
that appeared before her, and Burroughs bit her, which bite, which, which bite was seen by many. Also, Burroughs at the time appeared to Margaret Jacobs, who was then present, and told her, as Jacobs affirmed that her grandfather would be hanged, upon which said Jacobs wept. It was also observed by the Reverend, by the Reverend Rister, Master Noisy, that after the needle was taken away from Soames, that Warren was neither bit, not pinched by the said Soames, but struck so dreadfully on her breast that she cried out she was almost killed. This is the first time an accused witch claimed herself to be a god, albeit Mary Warren's god. How this must have set with the Puritan judges, one can only guess. Was it worse to claim you were the devil or God? The blatant blasphemy must have set them ba back, as they questioned Mary, asking, "Is this true?" Mary confirmed Soames's. So Mary confirmed Soames had said she was as good as a god. Upon hearing Mary's claim that George Burroughs' specter had prophesied that George Jacobs Sr. would hang, Margaret Jacobs broke down and sobbed. Margaret was still in jail, saying that specters were still tormenting her. But, as the reality of where she was and all the lies she had proclaimed against her fellow neighbors overwhelmed her, she broke down. It was evil to bear false witness against thy neighbor. How much viler was it when those lies might result in their deaths? Fearing her actions had put her in the firm grasp of the devil, Mary recanted her confession, deciding the magistrate's worst wrath was, was a lesser punishment than what the devil could do to her. It backfired on her. The magistrates were not pleased. They, they were close to having the charter back in their midst, and the proper trials began. They, they told her that by recanting her earlier confession, she was demonstrating a sudden relapse. She had wavered back and forth so many times, they ordered that she be put in a separate room with no time outside in the prison yard, a daily respite greatly cherished by those who spent their hours in the stench and darkness of the prisons. It was probably a pragmatic move as well. Away from others, she could not influence them with her sudden turn of consciousness. Of conscious. Elizabeth Coulson. Elizabeth Coulson was one of the names on the arrest warrants handed out two days earlier. Susanna Sheldon had claimed the specter of Coulson, along with George and Rebecca Jacobs, had threatened to stab her, and indeed claimed the Jacobs had wounded her on her left side. When reading, when, when reading, Constable John Parker showed up and pounded on Elizabeth Coulson's door. He found she had fled, and guessed she may have headed to Boston to jump aboard a ship. Martha Carrier Martha Carrier was the Queen of Hell, according to Abigail Williams. According to Abigail Williams' report on her back in April, Abigail said she saw Carrier and the other witches dining in the parsonage pasture with the King of Hell. George Burroughs, at the head of Carrier's spirit, was now suddenly increasingly active. Her specter attacked the 11-year-old girl, Phoebe Chandler, in an Andover meeting house. The girl said Carrier leaned over a pew and grabbed her shoulder, shaking her and asking her where she lived. This was odd, as Martha Carrier, excuse me, as Martha Carrier and Phoebe Chandler were related by marriage and had even gone to mutual relatives during the smallpox epidemic. Phoebe's father ran a tavern in southern Andover. The carriers were just over the Andover line in Belurka. It was a warm May afternoon in Andover. Phoebe Chandler balanced a tray of beer from her father's tavern she was carrying to the farmhands. A voice suddenly hissed at her from the bushes to the side of the path. Where are you going? The voice whispered. Frightened, Phoebe looked back over her shoulder at the tavern with the swinging wooden sign of horseshoe. No one was in sight. Phoebe broke into a run, foam sloshing from the mug she, mug she carried, and told the farmhands what had happened. It was Martha Carrier's voice she heard. That's what she told them. But Martha was in prison in Boston. That meant she had sent her witch shape to torment the girl. Two hours passed, and the frightened girl hurried along the same path home. A breeze moved the branches overhead. Was that a voice or the rustling of the leaves? The whispering suddenly merged into one rasping voice. Martha's witch shape was now above her in the boughs. I'm going to poison you, Phoebe. You have only a few days to live. Terrified, the young girl ran frantically to the house of her half-sister Elizabeth, who was living with her widowed mother-in-law, Faith Allen, Martha Carrier's mother. Elizabeth's husband had died of smallpox two winters earlier. 
It was rumored Martha and her family had brought the deathly disease with them when they stayed that winter with the Allens. While Carrier's spirit was abusing young girls in Andover, back in Boston, the legalities born of the new charter were carried out. Phipps officially became governor of Massachusetts, replacing old governor Simon Broadstreet, who had been a puppet official during the hurried overthrow of Andros. He was frail and often absent from church services and government businesses. He had been of sound mind and body able to carry out the mantle firmly placed upon his head. The witch madness might not have spiraled out of control. He had left matters to his deputy governor, Thomas Danforth. Had Bradstreet been in attendance at the Inquisitions, it is possible he would not have allowed the admission of spectral evidence, being a pragmatic man impatient with folly of those who wasted his time. The charter was read, finally, in its entirety. It wasn't everything the colonists had hoped for, but the main concern of the property deeds becoming invalid was now at rest. A collective sigh of relief must have sounded throughout the room. Phipps was now governor, vice-admiral, and commander-in-chief of old New England militias. His right-hand man, William Stoughton, was named lieutenant governor, and Isaac Addington became secretary. Samuel Sewall would become one of the counselors. Mary Estee is released. For this author, no story carries so much sympathy throughout the witchcraft chaos as that of the town sisters, Rebecca Nurse, Mary Etsy, and Sarah Cloyce. It was obvious the magistrates looked at the calm, pious faces of Rebecca and Mary during their examinations and their confidence in their guilt floundered. floundered. Hawthorne, in particular, wavered and went beyond his usual full steam ahead method of coercing the accused into confessions. He asked the girls if they were sure this was the woman who specter permitted them. On Wednesday, May 18th, after John Willard was led away to jail, Mary Etsy was brought into the courtroom to be reexamined. She had languished in Salem jail for almost a month, while her sister Rebecca Nurse sat shackled in Boston prison. Mary was almost 20 years younger than her sister, and had left behind a large family in Topsfield, eight boys and four girls. Little Jeffrey was only 12. Her husband Isaac had been steadfast in proclaiming her innocence. As Mary stood before the magistrates, her hair matted, clothes filthy from the dirty Salem jail floor, the fear of what awaited her was tremendous. She waited for the usual shrieking of the afflicted girls as she stood there, still calm on the outside, but nerves threatened to abandon her. Oddly, there was no outcry. Only Mercy Lewis remained firm in her accusation that Mary Etsy Specter had tormented her. The other girls were now not so sure. Hawthorne may have inevitably breathed a sigh of relief. He ordered the beleaguered woman re released to the custody of her family. Mary Etsy walked out of Salem Village, walked out of the Salem Village meeting house into the May sunshine. It is probable that one of her family was in attendance at her hearing and was there to take her home. The mint green of the new leaves opening, along with, with the blossoms that infused spring, must have been the most beautiful confirmation that she had been literally reborn, saved from the hangman's noose. Her joy was tempered only by the knowledge that her two sisters still sat chained in Boston prison, awaiting their trials. Perhaps she may have thought, if the judges believe me innocent, they will see the same goodness in Sarah and Rebecca. The welcoming chaos that ensured at the nurse farm must have been heartwarming. All the loving arms flung about her neck, the joy of her neighbors who had anguished over her plight for the past month. How wondrous to feel fresh water and soap and a luxury of cleanly washed clothes and bed sheets. She was home. Mary Etsy had missed being carted off to Boston prison by only one day. The following day, May 19th, the prisoners, who had been held in the watch house during their examinations, were tied to the cart rails of Ingersoll's wooden wagon and had herded to Boston. Jailer John Arnold, happy he had beefed up his jailhouse infrastructure, pulled out his trusty quill and entered in the new arrivals, posting the date of the commencement of their bill for room board a day early. The witchcraft madness filled the pockets of those who, whose fortune it fell to house the hapless victims, taverns, and jails. Beatles and Ingersoll's taverns, along with others, saw their coffers fill as they fed the magistrates and spectators, filling each seat for every inquisition. In the back of their minds, they were no doubt aware that the circus was just getting started. The real trials would start the madness all over again. As John Willard, Sarah Buckley, Mary Witheridge, Rebecca Jacobs, Roger Toothacre, Elizabeth Hart, 
and Thomas Ferrer Sr. were looking about in honor of their new accommodations in Boston Prison. A full moon rose to the treetops. It hit its head, perhaps in shame as pregnant clouds scudded across its face. Thunder rumbled overhead as Mercy Lewis lay in bed staring at the shadows darting about the ceiling from the thrashing trees outside her window. She was staying with Thomas Putnam Jr.'s cousin, Constable John Putnam, who lived nearby. Anne Putnam Sr., who had been somewhat quiet since March, was now suffering attacks from the specter of John Willard, even though he was freshly ensconced in Boston prison. John and, Hannah Put John and Hannah Putnam had lost an infant daughter the month before to witchcraft. They believed, well, they believed. It is unclear why Mercy was now living with them. It may have been to offer help or to keep her away from Anne Sr., whose mind was becoming increasingly unhinged by the whole affair. On May 20th, only one day after Mary Etsy had been released and gone home, Mercy lay in the darkness, watching the shadows, intermittent moonlight, sending crazy shapes flying about the room. They had let Mary Esty go, she fumed. She was home, even now. Celebrations and loving embraces shrouding the woman she had cried out against. The magistrates hadn't listened to her this time. She had been cast aside as witness. What if the other girl's silence came back against her? Would the court think she had made it up alone? Suddenly, the girl curled up in pain and yelled out. Hannah Putnam was the only adult present, as her husband John was in Salem Village's meeting house, helping the magistrates record their positions against Sarah Bishop and Roger Toothacre. That would be needed for their upcoming trial. Mercy's pain suddenly changed to a strange muteness. The girl lay pinned to her bed by some unseen force. Hannah asked Samuel Abbey, a neighbor who stopped by at nine that evening to fetch young Ann Putnam Jr., from her home down the lane. Perhaps Anne could see into the invisible world and tell them who was harming Mercy. Abigail Williams and Anne Jr.'s 20-year-old cousin Sarah Trask, who had not joined the ranks of the afflicted, accompanied Anne and Abigail back to John Putnam's house. As the moon dipped in and out of focus, Anne claimed she saw the specter of Mary Etsy following them. She and Abigail said Etsy told them she was taking her revenge on Mercy for still testifying against her at the re-examination. When they entered the room where Mercy Lewis lay spellbound, Abigail and Anne wasted no time in seeing the specter of Mary Etsy, along with John Willard and Mary Witheridge, choking and attacking Mercy Lewis as she lay helpless in the bed. At that time, Mary Walcott also entered the room. The three specters flew at the girls in rage. Etsy claimed Mary Walcott had blinded the other girls during the re-examination the day before and only Mercy Lewis could see that she was really a witch. Esty then set upon Mercy again and choked her with a chain. The witnesses in the room watched as Mercy fought for her life for hours. She cried out finally, Dear Lord, receive my soul. As the others watched, some in horror, some perhaps in appreciation of the grand performance, Mercy screamed, Lord, let them not kill me quite. Her eyes flying open, she begged Abigail, and the others in attendance to pray for the salvation of my soul, for they would kill me. She claimed the spirit of Marietti had threatened she would kill her before midnight. By the time John Putnam arrived home with Marshal George Herrick and Benjamin Hutchinson, Mercy's room was filled with concerned neighbors. The girl looked close to death. The men were told of Ann Putnam Jr.'s and Abigail Williams' testimony that it was Etsy Willard. That it was Etsy. Willard, with Witheridge, who was attacking Mercy, and they had attacked them as well. Hearing of the midnight, midnight deadline for Mercy's demise, and remembering the death of Daniel Wilkins, Putnam, Herrick, and Hutchison agreed the only thing to be done was to quickly arrest Mary Etsy and return her to jail. They ran to Judge Hawthorne in Salem, and he signed the arrest warrant. It may have been with a sinking heart, or riddled with guilt, that he had let a witch go free, and now a poor girl was at death's door. Marshal Herrick, hopped his horse, and rode through the turbulent night to Topsfield. The horror at seeing him as he handed Isaac Etsy the arrest warrant for his wife, Mary Etsy, on the grounds that she had tormented Mercy Lewis, Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., and Mary Walcott, must have been knee-buckling. This couldn't be happening. Mary was going back to prison. She had been free only three days. Back at the John Putnam house, Elizabeth Hubbard, not to be left out, arrived and was duly attacked by Etsy by Etsy Willard and Witheridge. 
She ramped up the ante by declaring more witches had flown into the room and joined in the attack above the bed of the dying Mercy Lewis. She cried out that the proctor's daughter, Sarah, of Salem Town, her aunt, Sarah Bassett of Lynn, and Susanna Boots of Beverly were now tormenting Mer Mercy and the other girls. At some point, Sarah Proctor's specter must have straddled her pole and headed over to Susanna Sheldon's home, where she and her neighbor, Elizabeth Ruth, were tortured by Sarah. Her parents, John Elizabeth Proctor, who were chained in the Boston prison, and Daniel Andrews, who was still at large. Marshal Herrick returned at midnight, out of breath, from his ride through the moonlight, hoping to find the young girl alive. He quickly informed her that Mary Etsy was once again in custody, hoping it would cure mercy of her pains. To everyone's terror, she cried out that Etsy was standing before her, threatening her with a, with a winding sheet. And parentheses to explain that, the sheet the dead are wrapped in for burial. Quote, I had rather go into the winding sheet than set my hand in the book. Unquote. Mary cried, nauseated and racked with convulsions. She appeared to grow weaker. The next morning, Saturday, May 21, Putnam's neighbors found the authorities and told them the girl was barely alive. Etsy's specter had tortured her all night. As Mary Etsy sat huddled in the Salem jail, mentally beaten down and frightened, the last degradation was added. The jailer unceremoniously entered the room and clamped eight pounds of shackles on her veined ankles. Her freedom, so shortly lived, was over. Mary Etsy would never go home alive again. Almost the moment the chains were attached to Mary, Mercy miraculously recovered. Her seizures ceased, and she lay calmly after two days of anguish. Based on the girls' complaints of the specters they saw in Mercy's room, John and Thomas Putnam, Jr., entered complaints before Hawthorne and Corwin against Sarah Proctor, Sarah Bassett, and Susanna Roots. Susanna Sheldon continued to be tormented by the specter of Sarah Proctor, who came to her along with two fugitives, with the two fugitives, George Jacobs, Jr., and Daniel Andrews, and told her to sign the devil's book. When she refused, she claimed the three ghosts struck her until she was deaf, dumb, and blind. They left her in the darkness deeper than the oncoming night, she said later. Darkness deeper than, quote, darkness deeper than the oncoming night could not have been more deeply felt than by those sitting in the squalor of their stone rooms. Back in Topsfield, Mary Etsy's family cried. Some ranted against the unfairness of the system that had returned this, 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 this angel to the misery of the jail. All in all, it was a feeling of utter hopelessness. Speak out, and you could be accused of witchcraft as well. The nights were long. There would be many, many more before the gavel was finally silenced. Chapter 26 The Court of Oyer and Terminer Mary Etsy had been in Salem's jail one day before she was ordered to be brought before the magistrates again, yet, for yet another examination. The charges this time concerned the heinous torture of Mary Lewis. Hawthorne had first ordered Mary to be brought to Beatles Tavern in Salem Town to save himself a trip to the village, but there were so many new arrests since her imprisonment that he once again saddled his horse and made his way, along with his trusty sidekick, Jonathan Corwin, to the chaos of Salem Village's meeting house. The magistrates must have wondered, as they settled themselves into their familiar seats at the front of the room, just how many other times they would be summoned to hear which accusations. It was the same excited faces they saw seated in the pews, the same hysterical victims writhing on the barren floor, and the same scribes scribbling furiously away on crackling parchment. The smells were the same, perspiration mixed with dust and the odor of field hands fresh from the plows. Light, speckled with floating particles of dust, danced through the diamond pane windows when they weren't blocked with people perched upon the, their sills. A gavel or rock banging on the wooden table for quiet, and the screams of which would soon fill the air. Outside, outside Essex County, the rest of the world went on, happy with boring routine. That was the, that was the 17th century in most Puritan households. Poppets were nothing more than dolls, and a sick animal's affliction was due to the heat or eating something that didn't agree with it. Babies died because it was an all-too-common reality of an era without proper hygiene and medical facilities. Children acted out, but were punished with extra chores or additional Bible reading and repentance. A pole was a stick or a broom handle that was, that was, that was as innocuous as a piece of paper, 
not a carrier of evil shapes, through the night. Salem Village had rewritten the book on what was innocent and what was not. Marietta, he stood in hopeless resignation before the magistrates. Opening prayer was interrupted as all the girls showed signs of being choked, yet remained silent. When they found their voices, they cried out that Goody Etsy was stabbing them with a spinning wheel spindle, one that had conveniently been missing from a house in the village. One of the clever girls had secreted the spindle in her clothing. She lunged at Mary Etsy's specter to wrestle the spectral spindle away. Triumphantly, she held the real spindle aloft, where all agreed it was the missing item. Even after the spindle was safely locked away, the girls claimed they saw it in Marietta's spectral hands. In the classic story of Sleeping Beauty, the evil queen uses a spindle to cast her spell of death upon the princess. A prince's kiss of true love awakens and saves the heroine. There would be no salvation on this earth for Mary Etsy. Etsy was led from the room. Sarah Bassett of Lynn, Elizabeth Proctor's sister-in-law, and Susanna Roots of Beverly were examined next. The only record of these two inquests related to the root, related to Roots, whose fellow boarder claimed he heard Susanna's conversation, conversing with at least five other voices in a room empty of anyone other than herself. It was also alleged that she was seldom at family prayers. As others were cried out upon, the magistrates ordered the arrest of Benjamin Proctor and his aunt Mary D. Rich, along with Sarah Pease, due to allegations of their specters tormenting Abigail Williams, Mary Warren, Elizabeth Hubbard, and the other usual cast of sufferers. The three were gathered up and brought to the meeting house for the questioning. The hurry was due to Hawthorne and Corwin's schedule, which would have them away for the next several days. The speed at which these three were accused, arrest drawn up, apprehended, questioned, and jailed would have made their heads spin. In the course of only one day, they were dragged from their homes and sent to Salem Jail, only to be transferred to Boston Prison the next day. The new group to travel via cart across the New England landscape were Mary Etsy, Susanna Roots, Sarah Bassett, Benjamin Proctor, Abigail Soames, and Mrs. Elizabeth Carey. One has to wonder about the reuniting of the town sisters in Boston prison. As they clasped each other, Rebecca Nurse and Sarah Cloyce, stained and dirty, and Mary Etsy, still dressed in her clean clothes from her short reprieve at home. Were they resigned to their fate? As Christian women, did they comfort each other with the promise of God's love for them? Jailer John Arnold built Boston for additional shackles for the newly arriving prisoners from Salem. The record proves the imprisoned witches were now being chained as, as an expedient deterrent to their spectral visits. Unsatisfied by the last cartload of witches heading to jail, Mary Warren, the proctor's maid, claimed two new specters were after her. Mary Irison of Lynn? and Mary Toothaker of Belurka, whose husband Roger was already in prison. Toothaker had the dubious distinction of being the sister of Martha Carrier, the Queen of Hell. Apparently, Mary Toothaker's spectre came to Warren with all the, uh, all the accoutrements needed for a burial, a winding sheet, a coffin, and grave clothes. She also brought the devil's book for Mary's signature. As Warren was still in jail, one has to wonder where names of the new witches came from. Was it any wonder the magistrates were having a hard time dealing with facilitating with the facilitating girl? One moment she was a confessed witch, and the next, new covenant recruits were after her. Captain Carey had managed to rescue his wife from the confines of Boston prison and have her moved to a jail close to their home in Middlesex County. If Elizabeth Carey thought her treatment would be more humane in the Cambridge jail, she lost all hope when eight pounds of shackles were clapped about her ankles. She fell into convulsions to the point that her husband feared she would not survive the night. He pleaded to have the restraints removed, but it fell on deaf ears. Elizabeth remained chained to the floor. Thursday, May 26, saw some newcomers to the Salem Village Lecture Day at that meeting house. The new charter had arrived in Boston, and all were excited to hear what would happen next. Many who had feared losing their land rights when the charter was revoked, were particularly eager to hear good news for the change. Most were there to hear the latest on the witches. If they were looking for more drama, they didn't wait too long. 
Mercy Lewis, Mary Wolcott, and Ann Putnam Jr. screamed they were being attacked by new specters. Those of Mrs. Bradbury of Salisbury, Goody Rice of Reading, Goody Reed of Marblehead, and Goody Fosdick of Malden. Another woman in attendance at Lecture Day, Mary Marshall of Reading, joined in with the girls claiming the specters attacking them. Goody Fosdick's specter claimed she was also responsible for hurting the black woman working for the Putnam's relative, Peter Tufts. A court of Oyer and Terminer. Terminer. May 27th, 1692. Through already sweltering, though already sweltering in the late May heat, found a certain type of relief. For Salem and neighboring the neighboring towns that had been overridden with witches riding throughout the night, throughout the night skies on poles, picnicking in the parsonage's pasture, and choking, pinching, stabbing, and murdering hapless victims everywhere, the final appointment of a legal court appeared as a rescuing cavalry. Now the trials would ferret out those who were guilty of witchcraft, and they would hang. Governor Phipps had wasted no time in swearing in his dream team of authorities to oversee the proceedings. Secretary Isaac Gaddington and other council councillors became justices of the peace, along with some magistrates, including John Higginson Jr. and Dudley Bradstreet for Essex County and Thomas Danforth for Middlesex. To expedite the trial proceedings, the jails were becoming overly crowded. Phipps called a special court, called the Court of Oyer and Terminer, meaning to hear and to determine. The foundation of this court was based on laws of England, not Massachusetts. Phipps had been appointed by the King of England to sit as governor of Massachusetts, and he would, therefore, make sure the trials followed the ways of the sovereign. Justices Nathaniel Salenstall of Haverhill, Peter Sargent, John Richards, Wait, John Richards, Wait, Still Winthrop, and Samuel Siegel of Boston, and John Hawthorne, Jonathan Corbin, and Bartholomew Gedney of Salem were all put beneath the supervision of Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton of Dorchester as acting Chief Justice. Stephen Sewell, St St uh, Stephen Sewell, the brother of Samuel Sewell and Betty Parrish's host, was elected clerk of the court. Thomas Newton became the king's attorney general. George Corwin of Salem, son-in-law to Justice Bartholomew Gedney, Gedney, and nephew of Justices Corwin and Winthrop, was elected to a new office, replacing his former station as marshal. He was now sheriff of Essex County. He was only 25 years of age at the time of his election. George Herrick carried on as deputy sheriff. Before the trials could begin, the girls remained active in their accusations of more and more people. Complaints were made out and arrests were made for Wilmot Reed of Marblehead, Sarah Rice of Reading, and Elizabeth Howe of Ipswich. On May 30th, Philip English was finally located at his friend George Hollard's house in Boston. Deputy Marshal, De Deputy Marshal Jacob Manning picked him up and handed him over to Sheriff George Corwin. He had managed to hide out for a month, reportedly behind a pile of laundry in the cellar of his friend's house. For a wealthy merchant of Salem Town, it had been humbling for weeks. Now it was a terrifying transfer from Boston to Salem. On this same day, Bridget Bishop's case was being compiled against her. Hawthorne and Corwin recorded the myriad dispositions against the former tavern owner and accused witch. The last day of May saw a few new faces seated at the head table of the meeting house in readiness for the questioning of the newly accused witches. Bartholomew Gedney and General Thomas Newton were in attendance. Newton, in particular, was surprised at the proceedings, even though he had witnessed witch trials before. Quote, I have beheld most strange things, he wrote, scarce credible, but to the spectators. End quote. Was this a hint of the... Was this a hint of his... Excuse me. Was this a hint of what was going to go on, or what the girls' antics were? Sorry, I fumbled the word. Reverend Henry Gibbs was also there from Watertown, and wrote that he wondered at what I saw, but how the judge and, and conclude, I am at a loss. Judge Jonathan Corwin was Gibbs' stepfather. Perhaps it took the, cool, took cool, the cooler heads of, of the men outside the fray to view the court's proceedings with some objectivity. Philip English was brought into the lion's den and accused of tormenting Mary Warren and Elizabeth Booth. Compared to many of the other complaints against menacing witches, English's were mainly spectral evidence and against only two of the afflicted, one of them in jail as a confessed witch. Granted, 
English was not a popular man among many with whom had conducted business. He had brought and he had bought and sold many properties in the Salem area and repossessed many. He had also been a constable in charge of tax collection, another role that brought few fans. His wealth and style of living may have flown in the faces of the many he outshone. Sarah Rice and Mary Toothaker. What question next? No records of the questioning remain. Sarah was a longtime friend of accused witch Lydia Dustin. William Proctor, son of John and Elizabeth, is believed to have been examined that day as well, along with Captain John Flood, who had been arrested two days before. Flood had three strikes against him as he looked about him at the at the faces of Ann Carr Putnam Sr. and her husband, Thomas. John had been the one to contest George Carr's will on behalf of the Carr and Putnam Hares. Hares. He had failed to get the results they so desperately hoped for. He had also failed in any attempt to save the villagers in York, Maine, during an Indian attack. John Alden, Examination of John Alden, as published by Robert Califf. May 31, 1692. John Alden Sr. of Boston, in the county of Suffolk, Mariner on 28th of May, 1692, was sent for by the magistrates of Salem in the county of Essex upon the accusation of a company of poor, distracted, or possessed creatures or witches, and being sent by Mr. Stoughton, arrived there the 31st of May and appeared at Salem Village before Mr. Gidney, Mr. Hawthorne, and Mr. Corwin. Kerwin. Those wenches, being present, who pled their juggling tricks, falling down, crying out, and staring in people's faces, the magistrates demanded of them several times who it was of all the people in the room that hurt them. One of these accusers pointed several times at one Captain Hill, there present, but spake nothing. The same accuser had, had a man standing at her back to hold her up. She stooped down to her ear. Then she cried out, Alden, Alden. Alden afflicted her. One of the magistrates asked, asked her if she had seen ever seen Alden. She answered no. He asked her how she knew it was Alden. She said the man told her so. Then all were ordered to go down to the street where a ring was made, and the same accuser cried out, There stands Alden, a bold fellow with his hat on before the judges. He sells powder and shot to the Indians in French, and he lies with the Indian squaws and has Indian papooses. Remember, that's all from the book. Old-timey language. Don't get me on it. Then was Alden, then was Alden in, committed to the marshal's custody, and his sword taken from him, for they said he afflicted them with his sword. After some hours, Alden was sent, was sent for the meeting house in the village, for to the meeting house in the village, before the magistrates who required Alden to stand upon a chair to open view of all the people. The accusers cried out that Alden did pinch them, then, when he stood upon the chair in the sight of all the people, a good way distant from them, one of the magistrates bid the marshal to hold open Alden's hands, that he might not pinch those creatures. Alden asked them why they should think that he should come to that village to afflict those persons that he never knew or saw before. Mr. Gindy bid Alden confess and gave glory to God. Alden said he hoped he should give glory to God and hoped he should never gratify the devil but appealed to all that ever knew him, if they ever suspected him to be such a person and challenged anyone. That could bring in anything upon their own knowledge that might give suspicion of his being such a, such a one. Mr. Giddy said he had known Alden many years, and he had been at sea with him and always looked upon him to be an honest man. But now he did see cause to alter his judgment. Alden answered he was sorry for that, but he hoped God would clear up his innocence, that he would recall that judgment again, and added that he hoped that he should be, that he should with job maintain his integrity till he died. They bid Alden look upon they bid Alden look upon the accusers, which he did, and they fell down. Alden asked Mr. Guinea what reason there could be given why Alden's looking upon him did not strike him down as well. But no reason was given that I heard. But the accusers were brought to Alden to touch them. And this touch, they said, made them well. Alden began to speak of the providence of God in suffering in these creatures to accuse innocent persons. Mr. Noyes asked Alden why he would offer to speak of the providence of God. God, by his providence, said Mr. Noyes, governs the world. 
and keeps it in peace. And so went on with discourse and, and stopped Alden's mouth as to that. Alden told Mr. Guinea that he could assure him that there was a lying spirit in him, in them. For I can assure you that there is not a word of truth in all these people say of me. But Alden was again committed to the marshal and his minimus written. Caleb's account, which was above, of John Alden's inquisition is very powerful, as it shows for the first time a complete abhorrence of the girl's tactics. His opening statement says, those wenches being present, who pled who pled their juggling tricks, falling down, crying out, and staring in people's faces, is one of pure disdain. It is apparent that Alden took on the court. Gending was an old friend of his, and perhaps he thought he could appeal to him to show reason. Why don't you fall down when I look at you? It's basically what he asked Gendy, a valid point if he was indeed casting about the evil eye. His responses to Reverend Noyes, likewise, failed to impress. He was denied bail and held over. Martha Carrier was next. As expected, the Queen of Hell was met with much excitement and wailings. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. We will continue next Sunday, or we might continue during the week. Like I said, um, I'm behind on bookings right now because, you know, the trip, I, I had worked really hard at uh, trying to get things secured for last week when I was gone. So um, I've got two bookings for this week so far. Oh, three with Nancy Matts, of course, on Friday. But there's two bookings that I still need to try and secure. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to try and get some people on this, you know, tonight. Because after I get done with this, I'm going to go ahead and start trying to find, you know, other bookings. But like I said, it's going to be hit and miss this next week as far as bookings go and stuff, because you know, I was gone for a whole week. Didn't have access to my letters. But I want to thank you all for coming. And if you're new here um, and you're watching from Facebook, whether it's my Facebook page or whether it's um, you know the main Facebook feed, excuse me, or uh, California Haunts Ghost Events, please hit that like button and follow. Always looking for followers. If you're watching from YouTube, please, um, please hit that... Uh, Subscribe button if you haven't done so already. We've got more than 500 videos sitting over there, and it's all different topics, and I think it'll be stuff you're you're interested in. So please, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking to build up my, my I'm looking to build up my subscribers over at YouTube. So if you can do that, that would be great. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, uh, California Haunts Radio on YouTube. You can find us on TikTok at California Haunts, uh, all lowercase letters. You can find me at Instagram, Ghosty Gal, all lowercase letters. Facebook, my name, or California Haunts Ghostly Events, or California Haunts Radio, or just California Haunts. You can find us under. And uh, Twitter, we are Cal Haunts. That's all lowercase. We're everywhere. You can find us everywhere. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific, we are going to have Ruth Roper Wild with us. And uh, she, she, she was sick the last time I had her scheduled. She assures me she's feeling better, so she will be with us tomorrow. And we're going to be talking about Ghosts of Great Britain. It's going to be kind of fun to talk to her about that. So I'm real excited. That will be a live show. Okay, because I'm starting back to lives. And like I said, it's going to be kind of hit and miss with the live shows here for the next week or so. But we'll get everything back on track. Anyway, I appreciate you all spending your Sunday evening with me. And I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did, Reedy. And uh, tomorrow starts our next week and uh, live shows. And I'm excited about that. And I do have video, uh, live video that I shot via YouTube of the trips to Disneyland and the different rides. I'm going to at some point, if not tonight, maybe tomorrow night clean those up so that uh, the, the, it's easier on the eyes, <laughs> so to say. Uh, it was my first round doing stuff like that, so there's some stuff at the beginning of each ride that I don't like, so I'm going to change it out. So we're making it easier for you guys, and I'm going to put together a, compila a compilation of what we did during the trip, including pictures of the hotel and all that good stuff. But uh, thank you for coming tonight. I, I really appreciate it. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And, you know, I'm just trying to get the word out about this show. It's, it's a good little show. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the one that that, that manages it all. But it, it is a good little show. I feel like we're the little show that, that that could. You know, I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. I know I can. You know, I knew I could. I knew I could. That's how I feel about this show because we're building up definitely with YouTube and, and Facebook. And we're also building up a, a good reputation at RSS where it's going out to Apple. You know, to Apple and and and, and different um, podcast sites and, and stuff, and uh, uh, my my fans that follow us, uh, you know, from those sites, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Let's keep it going, and uh, 
make this thing grow together. You know, it's just let's just work to to make it grow together as a team. And I, I think of all of you as friends out there, and you're part of my team. You're part of my team to help me build this thing up. So anyway, I want to thank you all, and I will see you tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific. So here we go. Have a good night.